0: Welcome. You're listening to the podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome again. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me to John chapter 11, verse 28. We'll read through verse uh, 54. As always, our passage is also printed for you in our order of worship. And uh, this morning we're entering into part two of a story that we started last week. It's the story of Lazarus, the story of Jesus uh, raising Lazarus from the dead. And just by way of recap, Lazarus, if you remember, has two sisters, Mary and Martha. Um, the story begins when those sisters send a message to Jesus telling him that Lazarus is seriously ill. Implied in that message is the hope that Jesus will come quickly in response and that he will heal their dear brother. John tells us though that Jesus intentionally delays for two more days so that Lazarus will die. John says he does that because he loves Lazarus and because he loves Martha and because he loves Mary and he does it for the glory of God. When Jesus does make his way to their home which is just outside of Jerusalem, Martha goes out to meet him first. Martha if you remember from last week, is obviously disappointed, she is sad, she is hurt, and yet in the face of all that, she confirms in a conversation with Jesus, she confirms her trust in him, though clearly at that point, she has no idea what he'll do next. That is where we pick up the story this morning. This is the last climactic sign in John's Gospel. For our young disciples, young Christians, something for you to think about this morning from our passage. Uh, In our passage, we have the shortest verse in the Bible. What is that verse? And number two, what does it tell us about Jesus? If you're able this morning, I'd ask you to stand now for the reading of God's holy word, starting in John chapter 11, verse 28 through verse 54. John writes, when she, that is Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come also with her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, His hands and feet unbound or bound excuse me, with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we pray now as we come to your word that we would attend to it as you've called us to diligently, preparation, we pray that we would hide it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. We pray, Father, that by your spirit you would minister deeply to us through the life of your son. Um, Father, we pray that you would make us and remake us and renew us in his image. It's in his name we pray, amen. Friends, three things I want us to look at this morning from this passage. We'll just jump right in. First, the thing I want us to look at is the sign or the miracle itself. What does Jesus, in fact, do here? Uh, Second, you know, John always calls these signs less so miracles. So a sign points to something. What, in fact, does this sign point us to? That is, what is still to come? And finally, just some takeaways for us. As we wrestle with death in our own lives, How do we wrestle with that reality with faith? So the sign, what the sign points to, and then what does it tell us about faith? Let's look first at the sign itself. We'll find that in verses 28 through 44, the miracle. Um, This passage, you could break it down into two basic encounters. The first is Jesus's encounter with Mary, and the second is his encounter with Lazarus. The encounter with Mary takes place in verses 28 through 37. And what we see there just briefly is we see in Mary the same kind of confused faith we saw in Martha. With Martha, what we got is an affirmation, a verbal affirmation or profession expressed in words that she still believed. With Mary, and this is, we we don't need to read too much into this, but we know a little bit about those two sisters just from Luke's gospel too. It's almost always uh, Mary's posture. It's almost always her posture. Here you see her once again falling at Jesus' feet. If you were to read back in Luke 10, when Jesus first comes into the home of Mary and Martha, and if you were to read ahead in John 12, when Mary anoints Jesus, we kind of always find Mary at the same place, and that is at the feet of Jesus. Not many words recorded, unlike Martha, but Mary here in her own quiet way, with her own temperament, honoring him by being at his feet. Yet, what is most revealing here is Jesus' own response to the situation. Once again, we don't get in the Gospels a lot of insight into the emotional life of Jesus, but we certainly do here, and it seems to be the main emphasis prior to coming to the tomb. So, John mentions the emotions of Jesus three times in this short passage. He mentions it in verse 33, and in verse 35, and in verse 38. Look what he writes, John does in verse 33. He says, when Jesus saw her weeping, that is Mary, he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. If you have your Bible open with me right now, you'll likely have a footnote telling you that the phrase that I just read as deeply moved in spirit, what it really means is indignant or angry. And there really is no linguistic justification for softening that at all. When Jesus sees the people there, he is deeply angry and he is deeply grieved. He is outraged and he is heartbroken over the situation. So the question becomes, why is Jesus so mad? Why is he mad? You know, some people think here it's because of the lingering unbelief from those who are grieving around him. They're not believing strongly enough. They're not trusting in him sufficiently. And so Jesus here is angry over their lack of faith. And to be sure, in John's gospel, that does occur on occasion, that Jesus is angry over unbelief. Not the context here, however. Because I want you to see here that John records Jesus experiencing those same emotions in verse 38 when Jesus goes where? When he comes to the tomb. So the picture here is that what makes Jesus so angry is the same thing that makes him weep in verse 35. It is the revulsion of everything in him against the power of death and the havoc that death is wreaking in the lives of those whom Jesus loves. So we might say with great conviction here that Jesus hates death. And Jesus doesn't just hate death theoretically up here. Jesus hates death in his body and Jesus hates death in his heart. And so for those whom he loves, who are grieving the enemy that he reviles, what does he do in verse 35? John tells us that Jesus sat down in that moment and he wept. Yes, that is the shortest verse in the Bible. It's also one of the most compelling. Because here we see in verse 35 that Jesus himself is in it. He is in it with those who mourn. God himself weeping with those who weep. God not pretending that grief is somehow imaginary or that grief should be hidden or even avoided, but in righteousness, Jesus joining his tears to theirs. You know, most of us have a hard time, I'm guessing, with the attribute of God's anger or his wrath. And one fallacy we make here is that we associate God's anger with our anger. We work from the bottom up from our unrighteous experiences of anger to his. And in so doing, we just assume that like us, that God must be harsh or unmerciful or unstable. There's lots of places to repair that imaginary. One of those is here. How is anger presented here? It is presented to us at wrath, over the destruction and misery in the life of a family. And why is that? Well, John has already told us, because Jesus loves them. And you know this experientially, but to love someone is to rightly hate and to rightly grieve the things that hurt them and nothing more than sin and death. A weeping Jesus and an angry Jesus go together can't have one without the other because of how much he cares for those whom he loves. What happens next in verse 38? Jesus comes to the tomb. In verse 38, the tears fade and he becomes this commanding presence. The first command he says or issues is to those at the tomb. He says, take away the stone. And then in verse 39, Martha appears one more time just to assert, even though she has faith, remember, The absolute absurdity of what's about to happen next. Jesus, she says, you cannot go in there. His body has been dead for four days. That is, it started to decay. The odor is there. You don't need to go see him. Jesus says, trust me. And then he prays. And for all the buildup of this miracle, which is 42 verses, the actual miracle itself could not be more simple. It is over in three words. Jesus says, Lazarus? come out and death obeys him and Lazarus obeys him and what we see is that the same word of God that gave life out of nothingness and out of chaos in Genesis 1 that same word now restores life out of the nothingness that is present in Lazarus he walks out of the tomb like a mummy he is still wrapped from head to toe in his grave cloths, and he comes into the full light of day. This is the fulfillment of what we just read in John ten three, When Jesus said, my sheep, hear my voice, what does he say next? I call them by name, Lazarus, and I lead them out. And yes, that means even out of the grave. And that's the sign. What does the sign mean? Well, of course, on the surface, it means a family is put back together. But even more, what does it point to in terms of fulfillment for what is still to come? To answer that question, we have to keep the whole of John's story in mind. But John has always, or already, as he does always, uh, dropped a few hints for us here. One of those hints, if you have your Bible open, is back in verse 24. It's back in verse 24, if you remember that Martha says, to Jesus, she says, I know that Lazarus will rise in the resurrection on the last day. And what Martha is doing there is just asserting an orthodox belief that we've already professed this morning in the Apostles' Creed. On the last day, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And do you remember how John, excuse me, how Jesus responds to Martha in that moment? He responds with I think his second to last I am statement of John's gospel Jesus says I am the resurrection and the life and what Jesus is saying there is that the last day resurrection the one that Martha hopes for generally that he himself is that resurrection in person right in front of her That is the pattern and the power for the resurrection in the last day. That pattern and power is no longer vague. It has a name. It's Jesus. Here's the other hint in the the story. If you were to read ahead in John's gospel in chapter 20, we're gonna read about Jesus soon being raised from the dead. And there is a lot of overlap with this story. Same language that John uses, there's a stone that once sealed the tomb, there are linen clothes covering the dead person. In that story also, there is a woman named Mary who is weeping outside the tomb over the loss of her friend. This is important, however. All of that in John chapter 20 is presented to us by way of contrast with the story here. In Jesus' resurrection, no one else moves the stone. In Jesus' resurrection, the body has only been in the tomb how long? Three days, not four, not yet to no decay. In Jesus' resurrection, the grave linens never make it outside the tomb. They're folded in a corner neatly to be kept in the tomb. And then most importantly, the body of Jesus that, like Lazarus, Comes to the people outside of the tomb. That body that is material and true and real. It moves through locked doors. It moves through closed-off rooms. And what we see there is that Lazarus's resurrection, while amazing and miraculous and jaw-dropping, Lazarus's resurrection is only a pale form of the resurrection and life still to come. You know this, but if you just carry the story forward, Lazarus would die again. Lazarus's body at some point would be rewrapped in those grave clothes. His friends would have to plan another funeral for him. At the end of John's gospel, it never happens to Jesus. Jesus is raised with an immortal body. He is raised, as Paul says, with an imperishable one to return never to the grave, but Where? to ascend to the throne of his father in heaven. So in Jesus's resurrection, it's not just a demonstration of his power over death. In Jesus's resurrection, it is the moment that death dies. It is the moment death is condemned and chained and conquered. And the good news for us this morning is it's that moment, that resurrection, that power and pattern that awaits the church. All those who believe in Jesus to whom John says he gave the right to become children of God. So go there with me. One day, we've already professed this, Jesus will return in power to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, he will by name call you as his good shepherd as he has promised. That is to you and to those whom you love in him, he will say, John, come out. He will say, Elizabeth, come out. He will say, Chad, come out. And on that day, your body will rise to his command, the command of your shepherd. You will be conformed to his glory. You'll be wrapped not in linen grave clothes, but in the dazzling white garments of his righteousness. And you will be healed. And the shadow and the sting and the possibility of death will be no more. The night of weeping will end. And a new day of eternal joy will dawn. And I want to remind you this morning, church and friends who are here visiting, this is why we gather every Sunday specifically. This is the day of the resurrection. And there are a lot of excuses, a lot of rationale and reasons for missing worship. But is there a better reason for overcoming those excuses and being here and singing and praising God, not sleepy, but with joy, than the fact that this is the promise that awaits you? And we've been doing this along with Christians all over the world in beliefs right now they're gathering. and It's been true for 2000 years because Jesus lives. The king who has passed through the grave and come out as our hero, whom we say is our only hope in life and a death. He is the reason we're here every Sunday morning. So how can you know this morning that this applies to you? Look with me at verse 50. We won't spend a lot of time here. Verse 50, of all the people, of all the people in the passage, it's the high priest that year who has sent us Jesus to death, who unwittingly gives us the right answer. Now remember the high priest is the one man appointed by God, see John's irony, to be the steward of the atonement for God's people. And what does Caiaphas say here? It is better for you that one man should die for the people so that the whole nation would not perish. Now Caiaphas is speaking at this point in his own mind about political expediency, that is to save Israel, the nation from Rome. John tells us that God is using him for our sake as a prophet. The one man must die for you so that you would not perish. Absolutely necessary. And the one man must be raised for you so that you might live. Absolutely necessary. And what I want to just say to you this morning is that this is always true, that Jesus is always the one for the many. He is always the one man for you. And so Jesus says a lot of this to Martha, and he asks Martha a question in verse 26, and here's the question for you to think about. Very simply, do you believe this? Do you believe it? And Martha says in response in verse 26, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, that is the one man for the many. A Couple of brief takeaways this morning for us. First is this. How do we face death in our world, not only in our own lives, but for those we love? Especially, I think, untimely deaths without the pain and confusion of death leading us to despair. I can't begin to answer that question fully, but I do wanna look at the passage for help. And I wanna begin this morning just by appealing to you as a reader of this passage especially if you know this story and you've read this story before so that you kind of know the whole thing. When you read the story of Lazarus this week and next week, the story of his death, I would say this, especially when you heard about Jesus delaying so that Lazarus would die, as a reader, did that shatter your faith as a Christian? I'm going to guess it didn't. I'm going to guess maybe it would have unsettled you, but I bet your faith at that, that moment didn't crumble, and probably for two reasons. The first is obvious. Lazarus is not a close friend of yours. He wasn't your brother. You weren't personally affected by Jesus' delay by his death. But here's a more likely reason. You as a reader knew how the story would end. You see, you had an understanding that the other characters in the story at that time when you read that lacked. And you knew that when Jesus first got that report, that though he delayed, the ending would be a happy one. And I would suggest to you that even if Mary and Martha later on read this story years later, the middle of the story is very different if you already know the ending. Isn't that true? Church, you know the ending. You know The ending you have the word of promise you now have eyewitness accounts of the better resurrection you have the spirit the gift of the spirit and you know enough to trust the seemingly mysterious delays of god to know that god's timing is never wrong that it is always held together by his unceasing perfect love for his church in the revelation of his glory And now saying that, i got to point this out. Who in this story knew the ending better than anyone? The Sunday school answer is the right one here. It's Jesus. The whole time, Jesus knew how the whole thing would go down, and yet one of the most remarkable things about this story, it always gets me, is that knowing exactly what he's about to do, Jesus sits down and does what? He weeps. Do you see that a strong confidence in the end of the story does not undo or justify the absence of grief in the middle? A mature faith adds its tears to the sadness in our world. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, all the while not losing confidence in how that sadness will eventually be overcome in him. And one last thing to point out this morning, Look at verse 35, especially for those of you who are struggling, wondering if Jesus loves you, struggling with his timing in your life presently. Verse 35, shortest verse, Jesus wept. Verse 36, what did the Jewish mourners say in response? See how he loved him. When they see Jesus offering up his tears, what they see in those tears is the assurance or proof of his love for Lazarus. And I would just rem- have you remember this morning that you have something better to anchor your assurance than tears. You have the table that we're about to approach. That as you have more than just Jesus offering up his tears, you have his body offered up for you. And as Jesus will say in just a few chapters from now, greater love has no one than this. Than someone who lay down his life for his friends. What do you do if you're doubting the love of Jesus? You try to work it out through your circumstances? No, you never read your circumstances and then read the love of Jesus. You read the love of Jesus towards your circumstances. If you are doubting his love for you, if you are struggling with his authority in the midst of sadness and confusion, let the cross speak to you again. Look there so that you might say confidently, see how he loves me this is the one man given for me let's pray together father we thank you for your word to us again this morning through your apostle John John who called himself uh, the beloved disciple who saw himself even through all the tears and turmoil of following you those three years as the one whom you loved father would you give us faith to see that as well help us to remember the end of the story We pray as a church that we would be good at weeping. We would be good at weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, that you would give us a full emotional life consecrated to your Son, O Lord, and join our hearts to your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Covenant, please visit covenantprez.com.